one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional territories of the Coast Salish people. On March 4th, 2011, a 20-year-old Tamiskaming man was visiting friends in the town of North Bay, Ontario. What was supposed to be a fun night out drinking and partying together turned into a more than decades-long mystery after he was never seen or heard from again. Although some clues were left behind, tying them all together has proved difficult. Tonight, we present to you the disappearance of Luc Jolie de Rocher. And you are listening to True North True Crime. Welcome back to True North True Crime, and thanks for joining us. As usual, we'd like to thank some absolutely lovely folks for keeping us caffeinated while researching this episode. We've got Rion, Jennifer, Kim, Juliana, Barbara, Kathy, and Tawanda. Thank you so much for buying us coffee, and if you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash tntcpod. True North True Crime is an independent podcast that brings awareness to missing people, victims of violent crime, and criminal court cases that affect Canadians. We are a two-person team with the goal of boosting these stories. We appreciate everyone who reached out in support of our recent episode about Cameron Collin. We hope some answers come soon for the Collin family. Also, we want to let you know that we do prioritize cases that come to us from family members or close contacts. So if your family member, friend, or loved one is struggling to get attention for a missing or murdered person, please reach out to us. There are many ways that you can participate if you don't want to be on mic or even on the record. 
feel free to reach out to us at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode. So in this episode, we are covering the baffling disappearance of a 20-year-old Quebec man named Luc Jolly de Rocher. Luc seemingly vanished without a trace back in March of 2011. This case was certainly not an easy one to research or put together, as most of the timeline on the night in question is one big question mark. The only person who knows the complete and accurate timeline of events of that night happens to be the missing person or perhaps those who might be involved in his disappearance. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles, the Missing Luke Jolly DeRoche Facebook page, and we definitely need to give a huge shout out to the Shedding Light podcast who were instrumental in clearing up a lot of holes and missing information from the other resources. If this case sparks your interest, please head over to the Shedding Light podcast and give their Luke Jolly DeRoche episodes a listen. They have five episodes covering this case, and we highly recommend them. We were unable to speak to any family members before we recorded. However, we have found some official audio of family members that we will include. My son really, everybody loved Luke. He was happy going. Uh, he's always smiling, even though it wasn't even funny. Like, you know, some people say, what are you smiling about? Oh, I'm just smiling. Anybody who knew Luke knew that when he was walking into the room, you're ready to laugh quite a bit. Um, He's a very, very social guy, very easy to talk to. When he was small, he wanted a guitar. Um, He was about two years old, and we got him this guitar, uh, wooden one, and I still remember him saying, guitar, guitar. Luke was uh, an avid guitar player and a piano player, and... uh, he would write his own lyrics, and uh, he told me, uh, he says, Dad, he says, uh, one day my music's going to make me famous. When I make it big in the music, he says, do you want to be my manager? And I said, yeah, of course, you know, and not thinking that, you know, that we would be in this situation. Those were the words of Luke's mother, father, and sister from an Ontario Provincial Police media plea. So, Luke Jolly DeRoche was born on June 28, 1990, to parents Monique DeRoche and Rob Jolie. He also has two sisters, Sarah and Priscilla. The Jolly DeRoche family resided in Temiskaming, Quebec. Luke's family and friends describe him as a warm person, a joy to be around. A social guy, always smiling and easy to talk to. He always made people laugh. He loved hockey particularly the Florida Panthers, which his friends would make fun of him for. But it was Luke's love of music that was something his friends and family speak about a lot. Anything to do with music, he loved, but one of his favorite bands was Nirvana. Luke himself was an avid and talented guitar player and singer-songwriter who wrote his own music. The family would often talk about his music making him famous one day, and as you heard, Luke even asked his sister if she would be his manager someday. 
So Luke was living in the small town of Temiskaming, Quebec, in 2011. Temiskaming is located in the southwest corner of Quebec on the Ottawa River and basically sits on the Quebec-Ontario border. Temiskaming is a relatively small town with a population of just under 3,000 people. This case, however, takes place in the Ontario city of North Bay. North Bay is the nearest, largish city to Temiskaming, with a population of approximately 51,000 people. Known as the Gateway to the North, North Bay has an interesting history as being a very important military base during the Cold War. In fact, NORAD opened its Canadian Operations Centre in North Bay. The centre was situated 60 stories underground to withstand a nuclear strike. These days, North Bay offers its residents relatively affordable housing and ample outdoor space with lakes, forests, and rivers. Being a three-hour drive north from Toronto and a three-and-a-half-hour drive west of Ottawa, it's an attractive place to live for many Canadians. Historically, North Bay has been a relatively safe place. However, as of 2021, like many other Canadian cities, North Bay has seen an increased rate of crime, notably a 10% increase in violent crime. At the time of his disappearance, which was March of 2011, Luke was described as a 20-year-old white man who was 5 foot 8 inches tall and weighed about 150 pounds with a slim build. He had medium-length, dark brown hair and braces on his upper teeth. He often had facial hair and was rarely seen clean-shaven. Luke was wearing a dark navy American Eagle peacoat-style jacket, dark blue jeans, and old New Balance black running shoes with green stitching. It is also believed that he was wearing a unique purple-studded belt. Police are focusing their attention on this item of clothing as it has never been located. A photo of this distinctive purple belt will be posted on our Instagram. On the night of March 4, 2011, Luke was visiting friends in North Bay, Ontario. He was staying overnight at a friend's apartment on Sherbrooke Street. This apartment was actually in a house that had been divided up into a few different residences. So present that night were Luke, two of Luke's childhood guy friends, one of whom was actually moving into the Sherbrooke apartment. There was also a guy-gal couple present that lived in the apartment together. Also present that night were three other young women. So, in all, there were four women and four men present that evening at the Sherbrooke residence. The only person that night who was not previously known to Luke was the guy who was a part of the couple who lived in the apartment. So the group's plan that night was to pre-drink at the residence and then go out and bar hop in North Bay. We should note that there was a bit of a snowstorm pushing into the North Bay area on the evening of March 4th, 2011, and temperatures were hovering at or just below the freezing mark. Luke and his friends consumed alcohol at the Sherbrooke residence before heading out presumably on foot to the Main Street area. The area of Main Street where the group went is roughly about a six-minute walk away from the Sherbrooke residence. The group first stopped at Blur Nightclub, where one of Luke's friends was denied entry for being too intoxicated. The ladies in the group did reportedly get into the club and remained at Blur. 
the guys would try their luck across the street at Cecil's Brew House and Kitchen on the corner of Main and Wild Street in downtown North Bay. Luke and his friends arrived at Cecil's just before midnight and started to make their way inside the establishment. Luke was last in line of his friends and unfortunately would be denied entry as he was allegedly deemed to have been too intoxicated. Just over a minute later, he left alone. His friends would stay at Cecil's without Luke. Rob Jolie, Luke's father, has watched the CCTV footage of his son being turned away from Cecil's many times and he does not believe that his son was overly intoxicated, so no swaying or staggering or anything of that nature. Rob does not deny that his son enjoyed partying or that he wouldn't have been drinking, only that he did not appear intoxicated enough to warrant not being allowed into the establishment. The Shedding Light podcast interviewed the bouncer from Cecil's who was working that night and turned Luke away. He remembers the interaction he had with Luke and the group, and he mentioned that he watched them approach Cecil's from the street and that one of them was worse than the others, referring to one of them who seemed more intoxicated than the others. He then said, three of them passed and one failed, and unfortunately, it was Luke that failed. The bouncer also mentioned being surprised at how kind Luke was even when being denied entry into the bar. The bouncer to this day Whenever he sees anything about Luke Jolly Derosier, thinks to himself, what if I hadn't been such a hard ass? And it really hits him hard. The CCTV footage from Cecil's confirmed that Luke and his friends arrived at the bar at exactly 11.54 p.m. It showed him leaving the establishment alone and walking onto its patio, where he initially turned left before realizing he needed to go right in order to make it down the stairs onto Main Street. From there, footage shows him standing outside of Zoo Nightclub, which was right next door to Cecil's bar. He was then seen by CCTV heading west on Main Street towards a bank, where the bank CCTV captured a cutoff image of a man believed to be Luke entering the bank, followed by another unidentified man. For eight years, this was believed to be the last sighting of Luke. However, in 2019, police would confirm that Luke later attended Shooter's Bar located at the Voyager Inn on Delaware Street. So the Voyager Inn was 29 minutes away on foot from Cecil's and it was snowing heavily on the night in question. So why would Luke, who was seemingly alone, walk all that way to a different bar instead of trying to catch up with his friends who had got into Cecil's? Unfortunately, no one knows the answer to this question. At Shooter's Bar, an employee recalled seeing Luke at around 3 a.m. on the morning of March 5th, 2011, just socializing with different patrons before obtaining a ride from at least one of the bar's patrons. No more information has been released about who he got the drive from. Witnesses have come forward from Shooter's Bar that night and subsequently been interviewed by the police. So before we move on, we need to talk a little bit about the bank sighting. We need to convey that it's unclear, based on our research, if the bank sighting is actually Luke, as it wasn't reported in any of the police media releases. Keep in mind that this is a still photo, that this is sort of cut off in places, and it doesn't show a whole person. However, it was reported in a few news outlets 
as well as the general online sphere around this case, so we figured we should include it in our episode. What we do know, however, is that sometime in the timeline of Luke's night out, some of his items ended up back at the apartment on Sherbrooke Street. Because during the initial police investigation, the police found Luke's dark navy American Eagle peacoat style jacket, his keys, his prescription eyeglasses, and his phone all inside the apartment on Sherbrooke Street. Now you'll remember that this apartment is where his evening began. So I guess the question here is, did Luke return to the apartment and then leave the apartment without his jacket, phone, and glasses? Or were his items placed at the apartment by someone else? Phone records show that Luke's last communication was a text to his father at 8.51 p.m. on March 4, 2011. This text was Luke letting his father know that he would need a ride back to Temiskaming the following day. So it's clear that Luke planned on staying for one night and returning home the next day. Luke's family would try to contact him on the morning of Saturday, March 5th, as it was his younger sister's birthday but there was no answer on his cell phone. There was talk of heading to North Bay from Temiskaming to search for Luke that day. However, the weather was pretty grim from the winter storm hitting the area. Luke would officially be reported missing by his family members on March 7th, 2011. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from this week's sponsors. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. And whoever you are, I hope you can find the courage to call in. It's been five years today my son disappeared, and it seems like yesterday. There's not one day that passed by that I don't think of my son. I always wonder, where are you, Luke? When are you coming home? Mama loves you. I believe there's somebody in the community or around the community that knows uh, something about Luke, and we encourage them to come forward with information. Hopefully this will help us uh, encourage them. There's always hope as a father. You can't uh, give up uh, hope on your son. Uh, you know, I dream a lot that, you know, someday Luke's going to walk in the door and uh, you can never count him out. I can't anyways, you know. Just, uh, until we know what happened, Luke's uh, coming home. 
So before the break, we went through the timeline of the night that Luke went out with his friends as best as we can. Luke went out for a night with his friends in North Bay, Ontario, and unfortunately ends up being separated from his friend group after being turned away from Cecil's eatery and bar. Later on in the night, he is seen at Shooter's Bar, which is nearly a 30-minute walk away from the area where him and his friends were bar hopping that evening. We also know that at some point during this night, some of his personal items end up back at the residence he was staying the night at. Finally, he was seen getting a ride with at least one of the bar patrons from Shooter's that night. Since then, Luke has not been seen or heard from. Now we're going to talk about the search and what transpired in the immediate days and weeks after Luke was reported missing. On Monday, March 7th, 2011, Luke's mom, Monique, arrived at the Sherbrooke Street apartment to search for her son. One of Luke's childhood friends, who we will call Ben to protect his identity, let Monique into the residence. Upon arrival at the apartment, Luke's phone was located. It was dead and not charging and sitting on top of what is believed to be a speaker. Ben was asked to give everything of Luke's that was there. It was then that they located his coat and a hoodie, which was reportedly damp. When Monique brought Luke's phone home, she charged it in hopes of finding any leads as to where her missing son could be. When she powered it on, she discovered that no one had texted or called Luke from Monday, March 7th to Thursday, March 10th to check in on him. Luke's loved ones found the lack of trying to contact his phone from his friends to be alarming. It was on this same Monday trip to the residence that Monique learned that the couple who resided at the apartment had left for a pre-planned road trip to Florida on Saturday, March 5th, the day after Luke went missing. We will be referring to this couple as Laura and Greg to protect their identities. It is alleged that Laura actually later returned from this trip early by plane on her own due to her boyfriend Greg allegedly being violent with her. Once Monique and Ben had done a sweep of the Sherbrooke apartment, locating Luke's phone, hoodie, and a jacket, they took these items to the North Bay Police Department. The police only held onto the hoodie and jacket and let Monique know she could hold onto Luke's phone as there was nothing of interest on it, and if anyone tried to contact Luke, she could respond. Police would later take in the phone as part of their evidence. It is important to note that Ben only lived at the Sherbrooke residence on the weekends and would spend his weekdays back in Tamiskaming where he worked. He would return to North Bay for the weekends where there was more going on. On Thursday, March 10th, 2011, Monique would return to the Sherbrooke Street apartment with Luke's sister, Priscilla, as well as a police officer. Ben, who lived at the residence part-time, gave them a key to access the apartment. This time they reported a lot of activity at the residence. The guys who lived in the apartment above looked to be cleaning their apartment's living room. They could be seen through the window moving stuff around. As Monique and Priscilla approached the apartment, the men from the unit above noticed them and came down to speak to them. Monique and Priscilla informed the men that they were looking for Luke and showed the men a photo of Luke. One of the men mentioned that he had seen Luke around in his circle, which Priscilla figures he meant his circle of friends. When asked if they had seen anything or knew anything, 
They said no. Another one of the men they were talking to was actually from across the street, and he mentioned they should look at another address, which turned out to be a house in the neighborhood with drug-related activity. Priscilla felt as though the guys were intentionally trying to send them elsewhere to get them away from the residence. When Monique and Priscilla went back into the Sherbrooke Street residence on March 10th, 2011, a few things were different inside the apartment. Laura and Greg's bedroom door that had previously been closed five days prior due to them being away on their road trip to Florida was now opened. This stood out to them as they were under the impression that no one had been in or out of the apartment since they had left on Monday when they initially searched the residence. The apartment was in disarray with open beer cans everywhere and general post-party chaos. It's reported that the apartment was a mess with broken glass on the floor, the printer hanging off the desk being held by just the power cord, and candy hearts from Valentine's Day strewn all over. However, in the living room was the coffee table, which was pristine in comparison to the rest of the apartment. Sitting on the coffee table were Luke's Ray-Ban prescription glasses, a Coors Light beer bottle that barely even had a sip drink out of it, and Luke's necklace, which is described as a keychain holder on a lanyard. Priscilla said it was strange because it had been neatly placed on the table and looked like it had been staged. Monique asked the police officer that accompanied them if he was going to take any fingerprints. The police officer declined. When Monique confronted Ben about why he didn't give her the glasses and necklace when she had previously visited on Monday, Ben swore up and down that those items had not been there or he had not seen them when he looked on Monday. Monique and Priscilla did check out the aforementioned drug house, but they did not find anything. Then on March 15th, 2011, a pedestrian contacted the police to report that Luke's bank card was found on Sherbrooke Street. Records would show that Luke's bank account was last accessed on the day he went missing on March 4th, 2011, when he withdrew $20 at roughly 2.30 p.m. Now, you'll recall from the timeline of the night that Luke went missing that there was a potential sighting of him at a bank's ATM, but there is no transaction record from that time frame. So on March 19th, 2011, police searched the eastern part of North Bay's downtown. The team included a psychic and a search dog, which was given a bag of Luke's clothes in hopes that it would pick up his scent. The dog led investigators to Main Street and then back around to Sherbrooke Street. Eventually, the dog brought searchers to Kinsman Trail, which leads to a park and a creek. The dog reportedly barked and indicated at the banks of Chippewa Creek. Nothing more leading to Luke was found at this creek. Police did eventually obtain a warrant to search the Sherbrooke Street apartment and the other units at the address. However, the warrant wasn't obtained until late April of 2011, which was six weeks after Luke went missing. There was a full forensic search of the building. It doesn't appear that anything notable came of this search, or police simply haven't divulged that information. The Shedding Light podcast spoke to a few sources who lived near the Sherbrooke Street apartment at the time, and they did recall hearing an altercation taking place outside the apartment that night. Unfortunately, this source did not look outside to see what was going on, but they were able to confirm that this would have taken place after midnight as it woke them up. 
They also heard a car running with music playing very loudly. All of this has been reported to the North Bay Police. In 2016, the Ontario Provincial Police, or OPP, would join the case and increase the reward for information leading to Luke's recovery to $50,000. That reward money has never been claimed and to this day is still active. It has been speculated that the group of men Luke was with on the night of his disappearance were brought in for statements immediately in the days after Luke went missing. They have all been questioned by police and allegedly were also given polygraph tests, which they are believed to have passed as no charges have been laid in this case. In the years since Luke has gone missing, there has been tons of tips that have come into police, most of which are helpful and have even led to the knowledge of Luke's last known location to have actually been Shooter's Bar. However, not all of the information that has crossed the police desk has been factual. On April 26, 2011, a 32-year-old woman who we will call Diane, as we don't want to give her any further notoriety, was arrested on an unrelated outstanding warrant, at which time she confessed to police that she had important information regarding the Luke Jolie DeRoche disappearance. Danielle would claim that she witnessed Luke being beaten to death and was aware that he had been dumped near his home in Temiskaming. This tip would lead North Bay Police Service, Ontario Provincial Police, the Quebec Provincial Police, and the Center of Forensic Sciences to search the Temiskaming area. They conducted countless interviews, polygraphs, and searches that reached a site in Temiskaming that required a dive team to search a lagoon. By October of 2011, it was becoming clear that Diane's story had inconsistencies, and she was caught giving contradicting information. Diane finally admitted the entire story was a lie. Luke's family was devastated, as were the police, as this had just taken five months of everyone's time, effort, and resources. Eventually, in November of 2011, Diane would be sentenced to nearly two years in prison, followed by probation for a year. She was convicted for obstructing justice by giving police wrong information and public mischief for falsely implicating others. Diane requested the court that she take part in a substance abuse treatment program, and she also asked the judge for assistance with her mental health challenges. Unfortunately, this would not be the end of false information in this case, as another person came forward saying that her ex-boyfriend had been responsible for Luke's disappearance. Police relatively quickly figured out that this person was also not being honest with the information she was presenting, and she was also charged in relation to her false statements. So we know that there are a number of theories and rumors that have swirled around online in the past decade since Luke first went missing. For the sake of time and not wanting to get completely bogged down in the rumor mill, we're only going to discuss two theories in this case. We would again direct our listeners to the Shedding Light podcast if they are interested in a more deep dive in the theories and rumors that surround this mysterious disappearance. So that being said, one of the more pervasive theories is that Luke may have drowned in Lake Nipissing. The lake runs parallel to Main Street where Luke and his friends were trying to bar hop that night. For those, like ourselves, who aren't familiar with the area, the lake is about one block away from Cecil's. The idea behind this theory is that Luke was intoxicated enough that he accidentally fell into the lake and drowned. Now, there's no real evidence to back up this theory, 
other than the fact that Luke was within walking distance to a body of water. Folks who are from the area discount this theory being possible for a few different reasons, one of which would be that the lake was frozen at this time of year being it was still winter, and a large winter storm had just come through the area with freezing temperatures and a significant amount of snow. The next being that this lake is very popular with ice fishermen in the region, and in fact people come from all over to partake in the ice fishing that the lake offers. They point to the unlikelihood of someone not noticing disturbances in the fresh snow if someone were to have fallen in the lake or any broken ice. Luke's father, Rob, spoke previously about his belief of a more sinister theory. He believes his son perhaps owed money to somebody and that they had arranged to meet that night on Main Street. He suspects that the pair went to the bank to withdraw the money that was owed, but Luke realized he didn't have his bank card. At this point, the pair returned to the Sherbrooke Street apartment to search for his debit card, which would explain how Luke's jacket hoodie, and glasses were found back at the residence, but Luke was not. Rob suspects that when the person who was owed money realized that Luke wasn't going to be able to locate the bank card and therefore not be able to provide the money owed, that Luke was then abducted and tragically murdered. Of course, Rob maintains that his theory is just speculation, but it is what he believes possibly happened to his son. Luke's disappearance remains unsolved to this day. However, police say that the case is still active and they continue to receive tips from the public weekly. All of these tips are logged and looked into. Police have questioned numerous people and cleared many folks from being suspects in Luke's disappearance. We highly encourage anyone who thinks they have even the tiniest bit of information regarding Luke Jolly DeRoche even if it doesn't seem like it would immediately be helpful to reach out to North Bay Police Service at 705-497-5555 and select option 9 to speak to a police officer, or visit them in person at 135 Princess Street West in North Bay. If you'd like to make a report or offer a tip anonymously, you can reach out to Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or you can submit a tip online at nearnorthcrimestoppers.com. Police say that the public has been astronomically helpful in this case. I just want to know where my son is. That's, that's what I want. I just want my son back. It, it gets harder to hope, but I really wish the, that you, if you have an answer, if you know where my brother is, let us know. Give us some closure here. Um, you know, asking you to do the right thing and to pick up the phone and help us with this. Tell us what happened, because we, we do deserve that. So please, if you have any information, contact the police. Crime Stoppers. Luke's father, Rob Jolly, continues to put up missing posters of his son in the North Bay area. Unfortunately, they are also routinely taken down. So he's taken to using a ladder to place them higher and out of reach, but not out of sight. We will be posting Luke's missing poster to our various social media pages, and we'd ask all of you to please share them as well. Luke's family, friends, other loved ones, and the greater communities of North Bay and Temiskaming deserve answers in Luke's disappearance. 
We ask that you share Luke's story, whether it be by word of mouth or by sharing this episode. Please get Luke's story out there. The last known sighting of Luke Jolly DeRoche was in the early morning hours of March 5th, 2011 at the Voyager Inn in North Bay, Ontario. At the time of his disappearance, Luke was 20 years old. He had medium-length brown hair and brown eyes. He had braces on his upper teeth. He is 5 foot 8 inches tall and weighs about 150 pounds. He was wearing a dark blue American Eagle peacoat style jacket, a zip-up hoodie, dark blue jeans, a purple studded belt, and old black New Balance sneakers with green stitching. If you have any information at all regarding Luke Jolly DeRoche, you are asked to contact the North Bay Police at 705-497-5555 or anonymously with Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. Our hearts go out to Luke's family and friends as well as the communities of North Bay and Temiskaming. We hope that some answers come soon. Our intention with this episode was to add another tool to the awareness campaign to help find some answers. We know that there is already a strong online presence for this case in missing groups on social media. People share posters and posts about Luke quite a bit, and we hope this continues until he is found. That's all we have for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out our Instagram for photos of Luke as well as maps of his last known locations on that evening. Again, we'd ask our listeners to join the Missing Luke Jolly DeRoche Facebook page to keep updated on this case and to provide the family with much-needed support. We will have that link to that page on our show notes. Our producers on True North True Crime are Vicki W., Barbara B., Colleen, Giraffe3000, Melanie E., Sean D., Alberta Bly, Carolyn Moore, Kelly Donahue, Jimmy Hankins, Shandy, Jessa, Sarah Burgett Weston, Louise Rickshaw, Lisa Marie Helm, Thomas Ernst, Maureen, and Jesse Dwayne Ryan. If you would like to be a producer, hit the membership button on buymeacoffee.com slash TNTCpod. You'll hear from us again soon for another episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.